Okay, uh, Scott is uh, Scott Booker is gone this morning, and so um, he asked if I would uh, I would teach. To to be honest, he asked several other people if they would teach. <laughs> and we got so far down the string list that uh, it landed on me. So um, we're in Colossians one, uh, where we are continuing where Scott left off. Um, so. The first time Scott asked me to teach in Colossians, um, he was shocked because it was such a big section, and he said there was no way I was possibly going to do it. Um, and, then I, and then I did, and so now uh, I don't know if you guys got shortchanged because we co- covered so many verses at once. Uh, because then um, what Scott asked me to do for this time is basically like a verse and a half. So I think he said, no more of this, like, big sections. We've got we to gotta stop Demo from taking too much of my book. So, um, so we're in Colossians 1. Um, he basically, Scott, started into this section um, and then didn't finish, and so we're going to recap a little bit, but it was two weeks ago, so maybe you've forgotten, or maybe you weren't here, um, but a little review probably um, won't, be, won't be hurtful to you. Um, so uh, we're in Colossians 1, and we're just going to read the, the, uh, the kind of entire section. Specifically, we're going to be looking at 21 through 23, but um, going back uh, to... Uh, to who Christ is that um, Scott taught on last, being in verse 15, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right, so specifically we're going to look at 21 uh, through 23, and there's really uh, one main idea that we're going to focus our attention on uh, this morning, and, and it's this concept. Christ reconciled you, okay? Um, I heard him say that these markers weren't so great, and he wasn't wrong. There, there's a black one. That'll work a little better. All right, um, Christ reconciled you. That's our theme um, from this morning. Christ reconciled you. Um, and what we're going to do, um, because this is what the passage does, um, we're actually going to start with the you part of the statement. All right. So, so really this morning, we're just going to, um, just like the passage is going to do, we're just going to break this one main idea down. Christ reconciled you. Uh, I am super excited about this because uh, this morning is, is our chance again to be reminded of the beauties and the glories of the gospel. Uh, it is a glorious truth. Um, in the gospel that Christ reconciled you. Christ brought you to God. Christ did the work, all right? And we get to see this here in Colossians 1. Um, We're in, as we continue through Colossians 1, yet again, there's not going to be a single command from Paul, 
right? There's no command words in Colossians 1. Um, this is still kind of his, um, it's his introduction has now spilled over into him um, beginning to, he, he just mentioned Jesus, um, right? When he, when he talked about the work that he had done um, in verse 13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom, his beloved son. Uh, and as soon as he says, and he's going to do this later in Colossians, as soon as he says something about Jesus, it's like Paul can't restrain himself. He says, his beloved son, and then he just goes off on this beautiful description of who Jesus is and what he does. And like I said, he's going to do it later in Colossians 2. Just saying his beloved son um, triggers in Paul this this almost hymn of praise and worship of who Jesus is, um, which is what Scott was looking um, at with you the last time, where it, it described him as the image of the invisible God. All right. So uh, he's the image of the invisible God. Uh, he's the head of the body, the church. He's, he's intended to be preeminent. All the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him. So after describing all of these just amazing, deep, um, wonderful things about Christ, um, what, what Paul does for us in verse uh, 21 is even more remarkable in light of all of these things about how great Christ is. Right? Because all these things that are true about Christ, he's, he's high above the heavens and, and all the fullness of God dwells in him. And, and so it's this amazing exaltation of Christ. And yet when he gets to verse 21, he turns his attention to us. Because what this amazing Christ did, this amazing Christ who is God of very God, he reconciled you and he reconciled me. All right. What happens in verse 21, you see where it says, and you, and you, and the original language, uh, there is a unique emphasis on the you, all right, both in its order and the word that's used, it's you, you who were once alienated, you who were hostile, you Christ reconciled. All right. And it puts in that order. We're, we're used to saying Christ reconciled you, right? That's, that would be the order. So, and you Words, 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 he has now reconciled, right? If we put that in our normal English order, we'd say he has now reconciled you, all right? And in the original, it has the you first, and it's on purpose because he wants to direct you, you, the, the Colossians' attention to themselves, all right? So we're going to start with the you part of this statement, Christ reconciled you, um, because that's what Paul does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. And so it has this emphatic um, position of you, and, and here's the descriptions of you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, All right? So when, when Paul says Christ reconciled you, uh, the you part is all bad news, right? Uh, the, the, you part, uh, the you part is one of those really discouraging uh, self descriptions, right? Um, we don't always like honest self-evaluation as, as humans. I, I don't know how many of you have ever been in the position of maybe you had a job where a job performance evaluation was a part of, of your job, right? Um, so maybe you're a teacher and there were, there were teacher evaluations or, or maybe something else in your profession where, where you're going to be evaluated. Um, and if you are like most of us, you didn't necessarily look forward to that time of evaluation. You didn't necessarily want a boss or somebody else saying, okay, now let's sit down and let's talk about things that you do well and things that you don't do well, and here's how you need to improve. That, that evaluation process can scare us, um, and we, we don't always appreciate it. Um, what the gospel does is it lays bare our pretenses of goodness and of excellence. 
right? And, and it cuts away all of this outer layer of how we, we like to dress nice and look nice and feel nice and act nice. And the gospel strips us all the way down to the point that it leaves us as hopeless, wretched sinners, right? Look what it says. It says, you who once were alienated and hostile in mind. That's, that's the description of the Colossians and it's the same as us. We were alienated, all right? We were alienated. Um, we, we were outside, um, an alien in this sense, some, someone who is outside what belongs to, to God, right? Um, so we use that expression of like interterrestrial aliens. Um, I don't want to know if you believe in them or not, but I'm just saying we use that word to talk about some, a, a being from a different um, planet. Did you just see, I think was it was it this week I saw, um, it's now, is it Russia or Japan? Somebody got into the hunt of trying to find interterrestrial life. They designed this new incredible, um, did, you, did you see that, Peter? Um, trying to find new life. Yeah. There, that's probably where I heard it too on the briefing. Everything I know I learned from the briefing. So if you watch the briefing, I don't have anything to say um, or listen to what I mean. Um, so there's people that are looking for alien life, right? Life outside of, um, outside of Earth. We, we use that expression not as popular anymore, but someone who's not a citizen of the United States, they're an alien to the United States. This, is, this was you and me, not alien to Earth, not alien to the United States, but we were aliens from God and from the blessing of God. Okay? We, we were apart from that blessing. That's who we really were. Um, and, and it's not that we were just aliens in a neutral sense. It wasn't just that we weren't apart. All right? Because this is not only where we're alienated, but we were hostile. Okay? It's not just being different. It's being opposed. All right? we, we were hostile to God. So the, the human condition is so far removed from just being um, the, the people that want to say that the human condition is we're, we're generally good and there's this little spark of goodness that just needs to be fanned into flame and, and we're generally good, we just need a little bit of help. Uh, is so far removed from the biblical concept that not only are you an alien from God, but you are ac actively hostile to him and his ways, his character, his plans. That's the real condition of every human apart from Christ. Right? And it doesn't matter how well it's masked on the outside. Um, it doesn't matter that some people will act out on that hostility more than others. The reality is that every human apart from Christ is an enemy of God. All right? Hostility, um, warfare. So it's not just I'm not a part of the United States. It's I'm not from the United States and I'm part of ISIS or I, I don't know, whatever illustration you can use of to think of. It's not just not being a part of. This is animosity towards. Okay? That's you and that's me apart from Christ. You, he says, you were alienated and hostile in mind. So um, notice that he connects this alienation, this hostility to, to, being in our, to being in our minds. All right. So the mind, that which controls us, um, our minds um, dictate to us our, our emotions, our behaviors, our actions. Um, that's where this alienation and this hostility is. All right, which really is a way of getting to the core of who we are. Right? Without your mind, you, you, don't, you don't function as a human. You, you don't exist as a human without your mind. He's saying to the very core of who you really are, you are an alien to God and you are a hostile to God in, in your mind. Right? But notice that that is not divorced from our actions because it says we were alienated and hostile in our mind doing evil deeds. All right, doing evil deeds. Uh, it's not just a mental problem that we have with God. It, we have an action problem as well. Without Christ, we do evil deeds. All right, this is the true human condition. That's the emphasis on the you. 
Now, as Paul is turning his attention to the you, um, he starts with this really with this really bad news. But um, what Paul is going to say in the reconciliation part comes as the best breath of fresh air that you can have. Because what Paul had done in these earlier verses, like in verse 20, um, yeah, is that where it is? Yeah, verse 20. And Scott spent a little time talking about this. It says um, in verse 20 that, that through him he was going to reconcile to himself all things, whether in earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He talked about how that was even going to counter some of the heresies that they were thinking. Um, in that verse, it's this big general, he's going to reconcile all things to himself, right? And so it's this outside of any one particular person. It's just out there. God's going to do this, right? But notice that verse 21 gets personal to the Colossians and personal to us. It's not just that, that Christ is going to reconcile the universe to himself and he's going to undo the fall and, and all of those things that, that Scott talked about last time, but it's you he is going to reconcile. Verse 21 gets super personal to the Colossians. Lest they think that Christ just did something cosmically that didn't involve them, he says, no, this is something for you because you, you who were in this really bad condition of, of being alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, you, he has now reconciled, right? Notice how it said you once were alienated, but now you're reconciled. So two different conditions. At one point, this is who you were, alienated and hostile in mind. You were doing evil deeds, but now, now Paul says, Colossians, you have been reconciled. All right. Uh, and then he's going to explain to them how they've been reconciled, why they've been reconciled, and what they should do with their reconciliation. All right. So those, that's our final three points for this morning. How did this reconciliation happen? Why did this reconciliation happen? And what are we supposed to do with this reconciliation? All right. And you can see it right here in the text because it says, he has now reconciled how? How? When, it said, when we say Christ reconciled you. So we started, we started with this first. The you, man, these are terrible. Um, the you was the really bad news. So the you ends up going first. Um, we're just going to sum all that up. Bad. All right. The, the news about you is bad. All right. Um, so uh, the bad news comes first. Um, but now we're going to move back to the reconciled, reconciled part. Um, He's going to say, how? So how was it that we, were, that we were reconciled? Specifically from the text. Okay, so how? Starts in his body. All right, and notice that um, Paul uses this really, um, it, in some senses, it seems like this needless emphasis on body, right? Because it doesn't just say body, right? What does it say? In his body of what? And his body of flesh, all right? What, what other kind of body would Jesus have besides, uh, like, is, I, I mean, bodies are flesh, right? Why does Paul say the same thing twice? There, there has to be a reason. There's always a reason. Why doesn't it just say in his body by his death? Because that means the same thing as in his body of flesh. So Holy Spirit, we're just feeling a little verbose, threw some extra words in, and no, like, why does he do it? Right? Body of flesh is saying the same thing. Why does he add the of flesh part? What's, what's the point? Okay, good. I, I do think that's the best answer. It is, it's because of the heresy that he's going against. So he's going against a heresy that in part was teaching that anything that had to do with body was bad. 
All right. Um, anything physical, anything material um, was inherently evil. Um, and so there were those who were even denying that Jesus had a human body um, because they didn't see any way that Jesus could have a human body without being tainted by sin. Right. Um, and so what Paul's doing is he's undoing um, that heresy by saying that your reconciliation happened through a body of flesh. Right. Um, this is a necessary understanding for us when it when it comes to what we believe in the gospel. We have to be committed to a bodily crucifixion and a bodily resurrection. All right. It has to be so. Jesus had to take sins in his own body. He had to become just like us. And that includes with a body, okay? So if Jesus somehow just took over a body, uh, or if he only appeared to have a body, um, or any of these other ways to try to get around the fact that Jesus was 100% man, 100% God, what you lose is nothing less than the gospel, okay? If we don't have Jesus being fully man and fully God, if we don't have him having a real body, you don't have the gospel anymore. That's how important it is. And that's why it's so crucial that Paul present this truth to the Colossians. Because if Jesus doesn't have a body of flesh, then he's not able to reconcile us to God. Because that's what it's going to take. Not the blood of bulls and of goats, but it's going to take a human body. It has to be a perfect human body, but it's still a human body. Okay? So the repetition body of flesh is not just rhetorical or not just a flourish. It's very intentional. It's very deliberate that this is how we were reconciled. We've been reconciled in his body of flesh. And then um, how else? What's another, um, what else is a, is a description of how we have been um, reconciled? Okay. So in his body of flesh, by his death. I think those are still talking about the same, answering the same question of how we were reconciled, right? So you were reconciled, you who were bad, how you've been reconciled is in Jesus' body of flesh, a real human body, um, but then by his death, all right? Um, it's not just that Jesus lived for you, Jesus also had to die for you, all right? And, and we go, oh, you know, I mean, like, our kids can say Jesus died on the cross, right? This is not like, we're like, yeah, 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 that, you know, we know that. Look, ha can you stop this morning, can, just stop and think for a second, that Christ died to reconcile you. Let, let's stop and remember again this morning, like we try to do, um, every Sunday, like we ought to do regularly as we remember the gospel, that what Christ did was die, but he didn't just die for, you know, to reconcile cosmically all things. He died for you. That's what Paul wants the Colossians to do. You, Christ reconciled by his death. And if you trust in Christ this morning, that's your testimony too. Christ died for you. And and I think it's so easy for us to like know the lingo and to, and to say, yeah, yeah, we know that's true. But I, I mean, how many other experiences have you had in life where somebody died for you? I, I, I would guess that none of us have had that experience outside of Christ where somebody physically died in our, in our place in, in order to rescue us. And so it's so far removed from, from our experience. And so we can, we can so easily put this into like, gospel lingo, theological lingo, Jesus died for me, um, that, that we fail to internalize and really worship Christ the way we ought to because he died for us. Um, 
I, I may have shared this illustration before. I don't have that many illustrations about, um, about dying, so I, I'm kind of short on those. Um, but I may have shared this illustration before about um, being at a father and son um, father and son camping trip. I told you guys this one. We were on a father and son camping trip um, when I was growing up um, at my dad's church, and um, we were fishing, and, and we had a canoe. We were out on this pond, um, and at some point, like, 12 of us boys decided it'd be a fun idea to all get in the canoe at the same time and take it out into the middle of the pond, right? So the canoe is fully loaded. We're out there. We're having a great time, and the inevitable happens, and it tips over, right? Um, so we tip over in the pond, and, and people are, you know, scrambling out of the pond, and it's all fine, except that there's one kid, and I can still remember his face, and he doesn't know how to swim. And two guys, uh, he keeps going under the water, and two guys who are, who, I mean, we're all just kids, right, are grabbing him and trying to, like, swim him up to the top, but they're not strong enough to keep him up, and he keeps going down and then he'll come up and gasp for air, and then he goes back down under, right? And the dads are up on the shore while the kids are being boneheaded out, out in the lake. Um, my dad comes running from the shore. He was a lifeguard in high school um, and in college. He comes running from the shore, dives into the pond, starts swimming. And I still remember um, this guy who was two years older than me at the time. He went under one last time, and the last thing he did was just put his hand straight up in the air. And the only thing out of the water was his hand, and then his hand disappeared. And so my dad's swimming through the water as fast as he can. He grabs the guy, pulls him up, takes him to shore, and rescues him. Right? He's alive. And there's this, like, you know, pandemonium, and, you know, it's crazy. And he's fine. Doesn't even have to go to the hospital. Like, dad got him out in time. He, didn't, he hadn't swallowed enough water to, to even be in trouble. Like, it all ended like, whew, like, that was almost really, really crazy. Right? And um, that guy... Uh, he's married with multiple children. Uh, he's still in my dad's church. And that guy has such an appreciation for my dad and respect for my dad um, because of what he has never, that guy has never forgotten my dad rescuing him from drowning when he was, uh, I don't even know what he was, maybe he was 14 or, or whatever, right? That's, that's imprinted on his mind that my dad rescued him from dying. From an earthly sense, my dad was the only one that, that could save him, right? My dad didn't trade his life for him, but still my dad saved his life. What Jesus did was so much infinitely more because Jesus didn't just stop us from, from dying. He actually died in order to, to save us. So I tell that story just to try to, in some ways, we have to get in our minds the reality of the situation that Christ died for us. It's, it's even more than just us owing somebody for rescuing our life. He, he, didn't, he didn't just be like a good lifeguard who, who pulls somebody out of the water. He, he actually went and died for us so that then we could live, right? And the debt of, of gratitude and appreciation of thanks that ought to just fill our minds um, because Christ reconciled you and the body of his flesh by his death, right? It's by his death that we were saved. And, and it wasn't in any sense that we deserved it, right? Um, my dad rescuing that guy, um, I mean, there's lots of good reasons to rescue somebody who's drowning. But when it comes to us, there's zero good reason for saving you and for saving me from, from, a, from a human standpoint, right? Um, we are aliens to God in our minds. We are hostile. We're God's enemies. We hate him and are opposed to him. Um, we're doing evil deeds, things that God hates. There's, there's no human reason 
There is only a divine reason that God poured out his love on us and he's full of grace and that's why you've been reconciled, right? So we're unworthy and yet what Christ has done is reconciled us to God, all right? So um, the fact that we need reconciled is because of the situation. We are alienated and hostile in mind. So even the fact that we need to be reconciled, we have to admit that we need this help, right? We are opposed to God. Um, So reconciliation demands that we're being opposed. And Christ is the one who is doing this reconciling. And bodily death is how he's going to do it. Um, But notice this passage is also going to tell us why he wants to reconcile us. Okay, why does he want to reconcile you? So we've said you, bad, reconciled, how, and then the why. Why have we been reconciled? Okay. Present, holy, and blameless. You guys probably know this as, uh, as, as good Bible students, but man, every time you read and in order that, that's just one of those big blinking, like, can't miss it, like, don't miss it. In order that, you're, you're going to get the reason. You're going to get the why, right? Every time you read and order that, you, as a Bible student, you ought to just key in on that. Um, you, you can't miss it. In order to, all right, you're going to find out why something's happening. And, and answering the why questions are so helpful for us, right? Why would God, what, what is God up to in this reconciliation? Why would Christ be willing to do this? Why would this happen? All right, because understanding the why, uh, it's not only going to drive us to, to worship, um, but it's also going to tell us what it is we're supposed to be accomplishing with this reconciliation, right? Um, what's supposed to happen with this reconciliation? Well, uh, it says, in order to, uh, I've lost it, there it is, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. All right? And this is another beautiful and glorious aspect of the gospel that, that uh, you were saved uh, in order for, for you one day to be completely holy and completely blameless, not in the sight of other people, not in your own sight, but in the sight of God himself. So there is a very real sense that, that we have been saved and, and there is a very real sense that we are still look forward, looking forward to our full salvation. There is a day coming um, when he is going to present you. It's, it uses this language that almost reminds us of the Old Testament sacrificial system, right? So, you know, in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the, the, the offerings that had to be presented, what are some things that had to be true about those offerings that were presented? They had to be spotless and without blemish. Okay, spotless without blemish. That's a way it was referred to. What else? What about these? What about the Old Testament offerings? Can you see that language reflected here? That idea of holy. What's the idea of holy? I know we know this, but let's... We're, okay, purity is a part of holiness, Right? Um, so that's only one part of holiness, but that is an important part of holiness. Holiness uh, um, has the idea of purity. What else is the idea of holiness? Okay, set apart, right? So it's set apart and it's pure. Um, the, the offerings that were given in the Old Testament could not just be any old offering. In fact, it's one of the reasons the Israelites got in major trouble with God for breaking the covenant with him, because they were choosing to give God the worst, and they were bringing their lame and their crippled um, because they, they were giving God second best, right? You know, God wanted a holy sacrifice, something that was set apart, something that was costly. Um, and so this language of Old Testament, both the spotlessness and the, and the purity, <coughs> um, that's going to be you and that's going to be me. Uh, because uh, 
I just think sometimes we do this. We look at the Old Testament, um, and, and I hope we don't, but I think sometimes we might. We look at the Old Testament, we look at the sacrificial system, and we almost act as if that was a different God. Well, like the God back then, he wanted sacrifices. And so, you know, it's kind of weird, like animals' throats were slit, and it's kind of nasty, and, um, you know, that was the God back then, but the God now, he's different, right? We, we need to remember it's the exact same God, of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and he still wants a sacrifice, right? And, and he wants it to be you. And the thing is that he wants it to be you. In fact, he wants it so badly that he's the one that, that made it possible for it to happen, right? Because left to ourselves, we are never going to be holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And so God did what only God could do, which make it possible for you and me to be an acceptable sacrifice in his sight. He reconciled us right? God wants sacrifice. God wants purity. God wants holiness. God wants to be presented with its pure sacrifice. And he knows that you and I are never going to get it done. And that's again why we're back to the goodness of the gospel. He does for us what we could never do. Uh, and in this funny sense, and understand the way I'm saying this, he does for himself what we could never do, right? God met his own demands in giving us Christ. Christ reconciled you um, in order to present you holy and blameless before him. So, um, before I hit the, the last section, let, let, me, let me just say, um, this, is, this, is the best, um, this is the best motivation that I think we can have in our Christian lives of why we pursue holity, um, holiness and purity. Holity, I just made up a new word. Um, <laughs> holiness and purity and blamelessness, right? Because that's Christ's intent in saving you. That's what he wants. So if you know that that's what Christ wants, why would you willingly give in to sin and live in unholiness, right? And, and, and being not above reproach. What Christ wanted in reconciling you and even being willing to die in order to reconcile you was for us to be holy and pure, which is what drives us to pursue practical righteousness, okay? We don't pursue practical righteousness in order to please God. We do it because we know that this is what he wants and what he's accomplished in our hearts and what he's going to one day make us perfectly, so let's be pursuing that now, right? But I want to encourage you um, that Christ will not fail in his purpose, okay? Christ, we, we plan things all the time that we're not able to do, all right? I, just every week, I face the awful reality that I can't do all the things that I plan to do, right? But Christ never fails in his plan. So if his plan is to present you holy and blameless and above reproach, guess what? He's going to get it done, God always accomplishes everything he plans to do. So be encouraged this morning. Again, Christ reconciled you. He's going to do all of his purposes. He's going to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, um, maybe you've had a good week this week and, and you're feeling fine, um, and that's great. But maybe you've had one of those weeks this week where you go, I am sick and tired of how I keep doing the same sinful thing, or I, I just discovered, maybe it's not the same thing, maybe it's I just discovered another layer about myself in the circumstances that happened, in the way I responded to my family members or, or whatever, I discovered another layer of sin, right? And you're just left going, oh, man, like, I thought it couldn't get too much worse, and then I look in myself in the mirror of God's word, and I find out it is worse, right? Um, Listen, that is, that is a discouraging place to be, but what you can remember and what can motivate you to not just stay paralyzed in your, I feel guilty, I feel disappointed in myself, I feel all of these things, is to remember that Christ will accomplish his purpose in you. 
You are going to be holy. You are going to be blameless. You are going to be above reproach in his sight one day. So that gospel truth can lift you from your doldrum and from going like, oh, miserable me. And it can go, um, it's true I'm a sinner, but it's true I have a great Christ. He's reconciled me and he is never going to fail his purposes of making me like him. He won't. He can't. You are going to be holy and blameless and above reproach. Okay, so be motivated, be encouraged by that sweet gospel truth. Okay, um, time has already flown. We need to get to this last, um, this last section uh, in verse 23. He was right. I, I need to only do like a verse at a time. Um, all right, it says, verse 23, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. All right? Especially coming on the heels of me saying, Christ will always accomplish his purposes, what does that verse sound like to you? Okay, so Jay says, it feels like it's all on my shoulders. It's like, this is all on me now. Like, oh, I, like, that was a nice, like, moment of, like, oh, the gospel and, and oh, Christ is going to accomplish all of his purposes. I felt so good there for a second. And then all of a sudden, I read verse 23, and, like, this hammer fell, like, boom. Oh, shoot, it actually is up to me, and so maybe I'm, I'm back. How are we going to make sense of verse 23? All right, how, how are we going to process this? All right, what? What's Paul doing in verse 23, and how does this not undo everything I just said about our gospel hope? Matt? I'd say verse 23 is more the evidence than the means. Okay. If you are continuing in the faith, if you're stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of what the gospel that you heard, then it means you really have been reconciled to his body of flesh by his death. Okay. That's helpful. What else? Kirk? Well, again, it's the initiator. Who's responsible? So if you continue... It doesn't say that that work by we continue based on our power. Yeah. Okay. Because he reconciles us, we will continue. Good. And so it's you know, cause and effect. Okay. Good. Anybody else? Did anyone else feel like verse twenty three kind of like popped a little balloon in your mind a little bit? Did you like go, oh shoot? Um, did that happen as we read it? Okay. I think those are those are helpful. Um, I think it's also, there, there are a couple other things that I think will help us um, to, to think through this on the big picture. Number one, the language helps us a little bit, right? Because there is a way in the original language uh, to do an if uh, expression um, where the answer is fully expected to be yes, all right? So if you continue in the faith and I fully expect that you will would be a, like a fuller way of explaining what the actual Greek is doing in this passage, right? So when, Paul's, when we read an if statement, we think, um, well, at least if you're a pessimist like me, if, and it probably won't work out, um, right? Um, that's not the language in this. It's not if you continue in the faith and you probably won't, right? It's the opposite. It's actually in the language itself. Um, it's if you continue in the faith and, and I'm fully confident that you will. If and you will, then this is what will happen. So that helps us a little bit um, understanding the original language. But I think there's, there's more help than, than just that if we take a, a bigger picture, all right? So um, if, and I expect you will without any doubt about it, but um, the, the reality, um, the, the, the tension that there is um, in, in our Bibles and, and in our doctrine is that all saints will persevere to the end, right? Everyone who's truly a Christian will remain a Christian all the way until the end. Um, there is no such thing as people who lose their salvation, 
right? There, um, that, that doesn't exist. If you are a believer, you will always be a believer, okay? Um, and so if, uh, the, if, if all saints will persevere, and I, obviously I don't have the time to, to um, clarify all of that right now, and I hope you're convinced of that, like all true Christians stay true Christians. Um, if that's true, then, then just like it's true that all saints will, per, will persevere, then that means that you personally must persevere. Do you understand? If it's true that all saints will continue in the faith, then you must continue in the faith. If you're going to fit in that class of, of saint, right, of, of Christian. Um, one of the means of maintaining our belief is, is warnings just like this one and much stronger ones like in the book of Hebrews, right? Um, our Bibles don't tell us, um, write your name in the front of your Bible, or pray a prayer, or act like a Christian for a few weeks or days or months or years, and, and you've got your fire insurance and you're good to go, right? Um, our Bibles tell us that if you are truly in Christ, um, then, then you're going to do a whole variety of things that include um, relentless belief and confession of your sin and all of these other things that are supposed to produce true fruit in, in your life. Those will occur, right? And you will grow over time. Conversely, if you're someone who says you're a Christian or you said you were a Christian when you're a child or whatever else, uh, and, and then there's no evidence of that in your life, you realize our, our Bibles don't give you any reason to be confident that you really are a believer, right? Being a believer is not just something you give lip service to and you say, oh, I'm a Christian, there, it's settled. No, me, being a Christian is a matter of your faith, your confidence, being in the, in the truth of the gospel and, it, and it's staying there, okay? So um, it is true that all saints will persevere to the end, but it's also true that you must continue to believe, right? I know you've heard me say this before, but that's, that's why I say it with our kids. When, when our kids say things like, I believe in Jesus, I say, I'm so glad. I want you to believe every day. I, I pray that for our children's ministry, for my own personal kids all the time. God, we help them to believe the good news about Jesus today and every day, right? Um, because there is no such thing as going, oh good, six-year-old Johnny said he believes in Jesus. Uh, well, we're finished with that one. Let's move on. No, he has to continue in belief, right? So um, the, the reconciling work that, that Christ did is only for those who uh, continue in their hope of the gospel. And if you really have been reconciled, you are going to continue in your hope in the gospel. That doesn't mean that there's not going to be times when our faith might waver. That doesn't mean there's going to be times when you might live in sin, right? Um, we know that God's going to discipline everyone who's one of his own children who lives in sin. So those things happen. But in the long run of your life, you will always remain believing, right? So the whole trajectory, even though there might be moments of doubt and moments of sin and moments of other things, the trajectory of your life is always going to be continuing belief, right? Otherwise, you have never been reconciled in the first place. Okay, so that's why Paul tells these Colossians that, that they have been reconciled if indeed they continue in the faith. And you, you, you've probably heard this before. There is only one best test of whether you're a true Christian or not. And what is it? The one best true test of if you're a Christian or not is perseverance. It's continuing. It's not how obedient you are. It's not how much faith you have in the moment. Uh, it's not how much your life has changed from what it was 20 years ago. It's continuing faith, right? So if you are saying, what's the best way to know if someone's a Christian? What, what you need to come back to again and again is continuing faith. That's the best way to know if someone's a Christian or not. And you go, oh, that's kind of messy. Like that could take, you're saying that I can't have like an immediate answer. 
yeah, that's what the Bible's saying, right? Um, there isn't this like quick test we can just, you know, um, can we do like a test to find, we're going to, you know, or we can do this test to find out if your girls are identical or not and come out with an answer, right? You can't do that with Christianity. You can't, you can't just apply this test and, and find out. It's continuing faith is the only way. It's the only best way to know if someone's a true Christian. Okay, so he says, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, uh, words used for like the foundation of a house, right? Um, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. Okay, um, listen, if you turn to anything else as your hope of salvation, um, you have no good reason to think that you've been reconciled. You understand? If you go, you know what, I used to believe that Christ reconciled me, but now I'm going to be reconciled by, I'm going to switch to, you know, whatever. I'm, I'm going to switch to Mormonism, or, or I'm going to, I'm going to now start putting trust in the fact that I've been a pretty good person for a long time, and I'm going to shift my hope from the gospel to some other world religion or some other way of getting to heaven. Um, you have no reason to think that you actually ever were reconciled by Christ. Um, we have to maintain our hope in the gospel. Okay, which is another good reason for us to preach it this morning and preach it all the time. The gospel is something for us to continue to believe, right? Like those great theologians said, uh, don't stop believing, right? Um, don't stop. Um, you have to not shift from the hope of the gospel, um, which, as he says in the end of verse 23, has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, under which I, Paul, became a minister. The I, Paul, became a minister is he's getting ready to transition into discussing his own ministry, which um, Scott will pick up um, next uh, week, Lord willing, in verse 24. Um, but as he's, as he's um, telling them not to shift from the gospel, he's ending with this statement, it's been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. So that's our last thought for this morning, um, because like I said, um, Scott will deal with I, Paul, became a minister of this gospel. What Paul's doing when he reminds the Colossians that this gospel is proclaimed in all creation and that he's a minister of it, um, he needs to tell them that because let's not forget, has Paul ever been to Colossae that we know of? Not as far as we know. Not as far as we know. And as far as we know, Colossians is this small backwater town that's drying up, right? The, the road system has gone around their town. Their town is shrinking. It's dwindling. Um, and, and what Paul wants them to know is that the gospel that they believe is not some weird cult um, belief, right? Uh, this is not like the, whatever heresy was going around that, that said only a few select people, right? That's part of the heresy. You have to be part of the inner club to really get it, right? Um, Paul was saying, no, no, the gospel is not like this secret inner club. The gospel is something that's proclaimed to all creation, this is not just this, it's not a new, th I mean, the Colossians had all kinds of heresies and weird religions coming in and out of their town. And Paul was going, no, 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 we're not like that. This gospel is actually all over the world. I'm an, I'm an apostolic minister of this gospel. This is not some weird um, religious sect. This is actually the truth that's been proclaimed everywhere that there is. Okay, Paul is again distinguishing the true gospel from the heresy that's trying to infiltrate the Colossian church by saying this is a universal gospel truth, not some hidden secret knowledge. Okay, so Christ reconciled you. That's the point of verses 23 or 21 through 23. Okay, you, us who were bad doing evil deeds. Christ reconciled. How did he do it? The body of his flesh by his death. Why did he do it? So he could present you holy and blameless before him in love. We have a great Christ and we have a great gospel, right? Christ reconciled you. All right, let's pray.